The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would open up your New Testaments to 1 Timothy chapter 2, we'll continue our study from this morning and be looking at verses 9 and 10 of that chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's wonderful to be with everyone this evening. It's especially a joy to have some visitors in our midst. We want you to know that you're our honored guest, and it's certainly uh, that we wish to see you back at any opportunity that you might have. You're always welcome here at Elm Street, and we want to get to know you, and so we're very happy that you're here and very encouraged by your presence. Uh, what we try to do here at Elm Street is what we sing about a couple of songs ago. Whatever we do in word or deed, we want to do all in the name of the Lord. The New Testament is the law of God that we're under today. So it's our standard, it's a pattern, and that's what we're trying to do. So it may be you have some questions about what we've done here. Maybe there's some things that, that you've seen or experienced, or maybe something I'll say in my, my lesson that you've never heard before you have a question about. And what we want to do is we want to, to be able to give a Bible answer for everything that we do and practice and teach and believe. And if we can't, we ought not to be doing it. So we invite you to ask those questions, and we'd love to study the Bible with you if you have that as a desire. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 9, the scripture reads, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. This would be the second installment of what I might call a series on modesty as we get to this point in 1 Timothy and our study of it. And we spoke of a more technical lesson one Sunday ago, last Sunday morning, and considered what was modest dress. It's that which covers nakedness, and we, we define that. We'll actually look at that a little bit this evening. This, or this evening. This morning, what we did was look at one end of the spectrum of modest attire, and that is, or what is immodest attire, so what we're supposed to do on the opposite end of that. And that was ostentatious dress. We see, he says, that they're not to have merely their adornment be with braided hair, gold, or pearls, or costly clothing. That shouldn't be the focus, but the focus should be on those who are professing godliness. They're mindful of God. They're mindful of His will. They're those seeking to please Him. They do that by the good works of obedience to His will, and that's the focus. And we talked about that. If you weren't here for that this morning, it'll be available to you to listen to online. I encourage you to do that. But there's another end of the spectrum that we're going to touch on this evening, and it has more to do with what we spoke about last Sunday concerning what is dress that covers nakedness, what is nakedness as defined by God, and therefore what is dress that is sufficient to cover that nakedness to where we would be dressed modestly as we're commanded, and that has to do with sexually attractive dress. And we'll especially note, I hope very clearly, what sexual attractive dress has to do with a discussion of modesty and covering nakedness with sufficient clothing. We know that we can be clothed and still naked because nakedness may be insufficient clothing. So we're going to touch on that this evening. And I hope it's understandable, practical, and I encourage you to apply it to your life. We looked at a review this morning, so we're not going to spend as much time, but I still think it's necessary if we're going to talk about modest dress to know what we're talking about insofar as the language of our text is concerned. That word arrange in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9 means, or, or adorn means to arrange. And it's a Greek word which concerns order. And so if we're going to have to order ourselves in orderly apparel, 
then there's got to be a law. Where there is law, there is order. Where there is order, there is law. And that's what we're talking about. It's outward dress, apparel. But it's apparel that is described as modest. Adorn yourselves in modest apparel. And that is similar to that first word, adorn. It means orderly or decorous. But it has a little more to do with an inward man. And so this outward apparel, it's just what we wear, is something which needs to reflect a modest inward man or one that has good behavior as it's as it's translated in the very next chapter in the second verse. Same word, not translated modest, but translated good behavior. As R.C. Trench says, it's the well-ordering not just of dress and demeanor only, but of the inner life, uttering indeed and expressing itself in the outward conversation. So what we wear says something about who we are on the inside, contrary to what a lot of people do believe. Now, the way we dress orderly and good behavior is with propriety and moderation. There is a sense of shame. And we think of shame often as something that we shouldn't have. And especially in this world today, don't be ashamed of who you are. And that's not really what we're talking about. This is an honorable shame. And it's the shame of nakedness, as we considered. It concerns an indecency of lacking clothing to be shameful. And that's an understanding of such. So the dressing with moderation would be a sound judgment that we have to cover up what we're shamed about concerning our nakedness. That is modest dress. And our goal in this, as we noted this morning, is seen in verse 10. We're to dress in such a way with orderly apparel or apparel that is of good behavior, reflecting the good behavior of the inward man who is a Christian or the woman who is a Christian. And it's dress which reflects one who is professing godliness. Godliness means God word respect or piety, not being like God necessarily, although that's what it's going to lead to. But it's I know God exists. I know he has a will for me and I'm aware of that and I want to do what is pleasing to him. And in every second of the day, we're thinking, how should we be before God? Namely, by submitting to his will. Those are the good works. So our dress needs to reflect that character, that we are people trying to profess godliness ultimately with our obedience. As Jesus said, let your, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We're not seeking attention on ourselves, but with what we do as obedient people to God's will, we're seeking for people to be focused and drawn to the God that we serve. We emphasize moderation. And I think that translation into the English word moderation especially is something that resonates with us in regard to the side of the spectrum that is ostentatious dress. You know, my mom always says regard to dieting, all things in moderation, right? And it would it would work if we actually did it, right? Just eat a little bit of everything, portion control, all things are good in, in moderation. And so with regard to things like jewelry or our wear, he's not saying that jewelry is inherently sinful. But when you're covered in jewelry where you're trying to get the attention of how much money you have or how much things you have, or just look at me and how decorated I am, that's not in moderation. That's in modest dress. We noted that this morning. But it's also important, I think, more so um, maybe with regard to our connection of modest dress with what we defined propriety as, the sense of the shame of nakedness. And so if we're going to recognize nakedness as shame and we want to cover that up, that's orderly dress according to God's standard then we need to have a sober mind, a sobriety, obviously figuratively. That is, we need to be self-controlled. We need to be circumspect and prudent and careful. Vine says basically what it means is sound judgment. We need to have sound judgment. You know, really this word is 
is used in a literal way as as um, Strong defines it elsewhere as sanity. And so the opposite of moderation would be insanity. And so someone might say that person's dressing like they've lost their mind. And that's the idea. You got to have sound judgment. And so figuratively speaking, it's about knowing and being aware of the situation as Bauer Art and Gingrich define it. It is self-control as exercise of care and intelligence appropriate to circumstances. The circumstances seen in verse 10. We're supposed to dress in a way that professes godliness, namely the focus being our obedience to God and mind set on his will. So we've got to sit back and we've got to ask ourselves the question every time we put clothes on, what is this professing? Is it congruous with, does it agree with my profession of godliness as a Christian? Or is there a contradiction there? This morning we saw that to, to be ostentatiously dressed and adorned would not fall in line with this idea of professing godliness because it would be certainly obvious that we're not focused on God and wanting people to be focused on God themselves, but we want to be the ones who have the focus and, and attention being brought on us. So, so especially as it pertains to the side of the spectrum that is sexually attractive dress this evening, we've got to really sit back and ask the question, what is my dress saying about myself? We've got to be honest with ourselves, especially as we'll note as it pertains to God's standard of dress that covers nakedness that he indeed has defined. It becomes apparent, I think we've all seen it, that sometimes we look at Christians and how we're dressed and we may even ask the question to ourselves or even to them, maybe, what, what were you thinking when you were wearing this? What, what were you thinking when you put this on? Do you not see what this, what this says about you, what you're, what you're doing and what you're saying by the dress that you're wearing? And that's the point. We've got to ask ourselves that question. We've got to exercise care and intelligence appropriate to the circumstance of us being Christians, being godly people, trying to profess that godliness and wear a dress that is congruous with that profession of godliness. And so we reach the end of the spectrum that is sexually attractive dress. What is sexually attractive dress? Ostentatious dress, we know this morning, was the excess of dress. You can have too much dress in the sense of it being flashy and being distracting and being all about me, not about God. Well, sexually attractive dress is the opposite of that. It's insufficient dress. And it has a lot to do with that word we read in verse 10 or verse 9, that is propriety. The American Standard Bible says it is shamefastness. That's the translation. So it's a, a sense of holding fast to shame. And it's the shame which is honorable concerning nakedness. And you can see it even with, with, with children. They, they have an understanding that, that nakedness is, is shameful and they may turn away if they see something, see someone that is naked or not dressed appropriately. And, and I think that is understood with us. There may be a point that someone reaches where their conscience is seared and they feel no shame at all, no matter what they're wearing or not wearing. But I think it's very obvious that there's a shame that comes with nakedness in the public place. There is a place where nakedness is right and pure. We'll note that in a moment. Where, where shame doesn't have to be in the equation when we're naked before a person in that particular union and institution, but anywhere else, there is shame that is paired with nakedness. And so when we're talking about the end of the spectrum of immodest dress, that is the sexually attractive dress, that's what we're talking about. It's dress, which does not cover up nakedness. We considered this last Sunday, and I think it's necessary to consider very briefly again, that there is a standard 
of modest dress, especially as it pertains to the covering of the shame of nakedness. And so modest dress is that which covers nakedness. And what is nakedness? Well, we went to the Old Testament last Sunday to define nakedness. And we'll emphasize again that we can do this not because we're binding the Old Testament. That's been nailed to the cross. We can't use the Old Testament to argue for modest dress in the sense of binding the Old Testament any more than we can go to the Old Testament to argue for the using of instrumental music in worship because it was authorized and commanded under the Old Testament, but we're under a New Testament. But what we did is we went to the Old Testament simply to define a term, define nakedness. And I don't think anybody in their right mind would argue that nakedness in Genesis and nakedness in the Old Testament is different to God now than nakedness in the New Testament. It is something just like the sanctity of life. Murder is wrong at any time. Nakedness bears shame and is wrong at any time. And so we're simply defining terms. Romans 15 and verse 4 says the Old Testament is written for our learning. And that's exactly what we're using it for here. We use it to define faith. We use it to define disobedience. And we use it to de define concepts of authority. We use it to define nakedness. We saw that nakedness according to God's standard, not any subjective standard, but what does God say is nakedness, is that area which reaches from the waist to the thighs. And we notice that that's a figure of speech which would include the opposite ends of the spectrum with that standard and everything in between. So there is the waist to the thighs. It would include the entire thigh. We saw that with regard to the dress of the priests. They were commanded to wear linen trousers that would cover their nakedness. And it says that it should reach from the waist to the thighs. We noted that uncovering the thigh, as we see in Isaiah 47, uncovers the nakedness is what the author says there. And in Isaiah 20 and verses 3 through 4, we see the sign given for Egypt and Assyria concerning the shame that would be brought to them as God would defeat them. As Isaiah was walking around by the Lord's command with his buttocks uncovered to his shame and thus as a sign against Egypt and Ethiopia as a shame to them. And so this area defined by God is nakedness. But we also noted in Ezekiel the 16th chapter concerning God's love for Jerusalem that the uncovered breasts is nakedness. He says, your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. And then it says, when I passed by again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. What did he cover? He said, your breasts were formed, your hair grew, but you were naked. You were bare. Your breasts were exposed. I covered them. I covered your shame. I covered your nakedness. And so the uncovered breast is nakedness. But we especially noted something that really covers the entire spectrum of what God considers by his holiness as nakedness in Genesis with Adam and Eve. At the end of chapter two, it says that the man and his wife were naked, but they were not ashamed. But then they ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and came to an awareness of their nakedness. It says in verse seven, their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. So what they did is they made coverings. But what we read in verse 10 is that their coverings did not cover fully their nakedness. Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. And there we understand that we can be clothed, but still be naked. So what is sufficient clothing? We noted in verse 21 that God clothed them sufficiently. The Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. We noted that that word tunic was the Hebrew word kataneth, and it was that which went from the shoulders 
to the knee, and so he covered their nakedness. The area from the shoulders to the knee is naked, and modest dress is that which covers these areas at all time. And so when talking about sexually attractive dress, we're talking about dress which is insufficient, that is, it doesn't cover the nakedness according to God's standard. So what we're trying to do as people professing godliness with good works is to avoid the kind of dress that can be described as sexually attractive dress and cover our nakedness and therefore dress modestly. We might ask the question, though, as it pertains to the standard we just laid out by the Scriptures that is very plain and clear by God's wisdom, what does that concept of nakedness have to do with dress that is sexually attractive? Because I think that that we may see something that doesn't cover that area that we just defined as naked by God. But we might think of that not as a sexually attractive attire. I don't, I don't think of that as sexually attractive. But I want to tell you it is. If it doesn't cover that area which God defines as nakedness, it is indeed sexually attractive dress. All opinions aside, that's what God is saying. And I think that we can flesh that out a little bit and understand that. Sexually attractive dress is that which would tend to attract others sexually. Notice this, whether knowingly or otherwise. So it may not be your intention, but you still may be dressed in a sexually attractive way according to God's standard. And we need to make sure that's not the case. When we're talking about sexuality, when we're talking about a sexual relationship, it is vital that we bring up the topic of marriage because that is the intended place of the sexual union by God. It is the only place where the sexual relationship is indeed authorized. Any other sex outside of marriage is described as fornication. That would not only include premarital sex, sex between two people that aren't married to each other, but also homosexuality, bestiality, any kind of sex outside of marriage is not not something which is authorized by God and is there dishonorable. What we read in Hebrews 13 and verse 4 is that marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. That word bed is a euphemism. It's the euphemism for the sexual relationship. The marriage bed is undefiled. The marriage bed is undefiled. Any bed in that euphemistic way, any sexual act outside of marriage is therefore defiled and not right before God. So we progress further and we read in the scriptures that obviously our body is created as a sexual instrument. That's not all it's for. And Paul makes that very clear in first Corinthians chapter six. It's not like the stomach being created for food and food for for the stomach. Ultimately, the body is for the Lord's. But one of the functions of the body is procreation, as we read in the beginning. He created the male and female in his image and said, be fruitful and multiply, and they became one flesh. The body certainly is what is performed or used in the performance of a sexual act. We see that in 1 Corinthians 6, 13, hence the apostles reproving of them in admonition. He says the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. He goes on to say in verse 18, flee sexual immorality, Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. And we can understand exactly why that is the case as we read those verses in between. He says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? We mentioned this morning that one of the things that people will say concerning ostentation dress to get people off their backs is, it's my body and I can do with it what I want. 
But right here in verse 15, it actually says that our bodies are Christ. They're, they're his instrument. It's, it's God's body. It's, it's his gift to us as a steward to use in service to him and to glorify him. As a Christian, our bodies are the instruments or members of Christ to his service. And so he progresses in the logic. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. He says, do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. That's when he says that every sin a man does outside of the body is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. That is in the most heinous way, because it's not your body, it's the Lord's. And what we do is not just maybe commit adultery literally, but we commit adultery against the Lord. But I want us to consider that, that the body is used in the sexual act, and that's why he is condemning that particular context. We notice, though, that he mentioned Genesis 2 and verse 24, he was joined with her becomes one flesh. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And there we have the standard of sexual fulfillment that is authorized by God. When man and wife come together and join in union of the one flesh, certainly having more to do uh, than just with the sexual union and act, but certainly inclusive of it, that is the only place it's authorized. Anytime someone... Uh, commits fornication, they they join in with one flesh, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 6, but it's sinful. The only place that sexual fulfillment is authorized is in marriage. We see that in Proverbs chapter 5 when the father is imparting wisdom to his son. He says, drink water from your own cistern, and this is symbolic language, figurative language, speaking of, of sexuality. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well should your fountains be dispersed to broad streams of water in the streets? Let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and notice rejoice with the wife of your youth. He's saying the sexual fulfillment is not to be had in any other relationship than the relationship with your wife. Verse 19, as a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman and be embraced in the arms of a seductress? He's saying that God did create you with that sexual urge. We're sexual creatures, and anyone would be naive to deny it. But the only fulfillment that is lawful of that sexual urge is the marriage relationship. So he's saying, don't be enticed by that immoral woman. Go to your wife at home. We see that in the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians. In verse 2, Paul continues that concept of sexual immorality, although now he's answering a question that the Corinthians specifically had for him. And he says, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. We're not just talking about any affection. Verse two stock talks about sexuality. And in verse three, the affection is the sexual affection. We see it in verse four. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And he says, do not deprive one another, especially uh, except for consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And to that, he says in verse 9, if you cannot exercise self-control concerning sexual urges, 
let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He's saying you obviously are created with that sexual part of your being. And it's not impure. It's not wrong. God created you that way. And God is pure. He is not wrong, but he's holy. But the only lawful place to express that sexuality is in the marriage union. So if you can't control yourself, find a wife. If you can't control yourself, find a husband. That's the only place that that fulfillment is authorized. But I want us to especially notice what we read there in verse 4. that The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What he is saying is that when a man and a woman join in the holy union of marriage, that they have sexual obligations to each other, and that that wife's body is no longer her own to deprive of her husband, and that husband's body is no longer his own to deprive his wife of that sexual fulfillment, because that's part of the very design of marriage to fulfill that sexuality in an authorized way. But that would include what we read in Proverbs chapter 5, which discussed a young man not being enraptured by the appearance and the sexuality of an immoral woman, but go home to your wife. Be fulfilled with your wife. That's the only time it's authorized. And so when we consider that about our bodies, that's the very discussion when we're talking about modest dress. It's that which covers the nakedness of our body, not partially, but in totality according to God's standard, that has a direct correlation with the marriage relationship. Who is the only one that can see those parts of my body? It's my spouse. It's your spouse. I want us to understand the importance of that. It has very much to do with sexuality. And so when we're not covering that part of the body that God says is nakedness, and we have this idea, but it's not sexually attractive dress. That's sexually attractive dress. God says, no, it's sexually attractive dress. And it doesn't matter what the world thinks. It certainly doesn't matter what we think. It matters what God says. Consider that in Genesis. Remember in chapter 2 of Genesis in verse 25, it says that they were both naked. Who? The man and his wife, and they weren't ashamed. But then we read in the very next chapter that their eyes were opened and they were ashamed because why? They were naked. But notice what happened after they clothed themselves, still were naked. In verse 10, it says, Adam said, I heard your voice, that is God's voice in the garden, and was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. But if we're being consistent in our study of the scriptures, it's not that Adam was ashamed before Eve. It says the husband and the wife were naked. They have that authority. They have that that realm and institution God has made for that fulfillment. They weren't ashamed before each other. What did Adam say? I heard your voice in the garden. I heard your steps in the garden. I was ashamed of my nakedness, not before my wife Eve, but before you. They were hiding together from who? From God. There was a third party and they were clothed partly, but they were still naked according to God's standard We know exactly what nakedness is as we read verse 21. But there was a shame there, and it was not to be seen by anyone but each other. Now, obviously, Adam and Eve had probably a misunderstanding of God and his nature in that relationship, certainly. God sees everything. They weren't hiding from anyone, and we know that. But it's that understanding that immodest dress really isn't immodest dress if it's uncovering that nakedness within the marital relationship. It is outside of it. 
Anyone who sees you in your body exposed in those parts that we defined earlier, from the shoulders down to the knees, they're seeing your nakedness and your dress is insufficient. It can rightly be described as sexually attractive dress. That's only something that is authorized in the marriage relationship. And so, in other words, if you go out of your house and and you're not in the confines of your house just with your spouse and those areas aren't covered, you're dressed sexually. That's what the Bible says. We need to understand the importance of that. That takes the subjectivity out of the conversation. Again, someone might not view that themselves as sexually attractive dress. They may have a different concept in their mind of it. God says that's sexually attractive dress. So we need a dress to cover that up. And, you know, we might answer that question with another question. If, if you don't think that's not sexually attractive dress to me, I don't see why you think that's sexually attractive dress. We might ask this question. Is there dress that is sexually attractive? I think we understand there is. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, God makes it very clear that someone can sin sexually without the physical act that is the sexual relationship. In Matthew 5, 27, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Maybe she's dressed modestly. That's not what I'm saying. Maybe it's just his fault. But certainly it may be instigated by a certain attire. We looked at this last Sunday, that there is sexually attractive dress, as it's described in Proverbs 7:10, that there was a woman who met uh, that young man with the attire of a harlot. And a crafty heart. He saw her dressed as, an, as a harlot, therefore went after her to his own demise, as we read in verses 21 through 23. We mentioned Isaiah chapter 3 this morning as it pertains to ostentatious dress. But one of the things that they were guilty of was not simply ostentation in the sense of look at me and how much I have on, but it was licentiousness and lewdness. It says that they walk out with outstretched necks and wanton eyes. That phrase wanton eyes has to do very much with a sexual connotation. They were dressing in such a way that the men saw them and would be attracted to them sexually. And so we got to define, just like with nakedness, what, what is sexually attractive dress? And I think that we've done that sufficiently this evening. It's dress which exposes nakedness according to God's standard, from the shoulders down to the knees. And so we need to make that application. Are we dressing with propriety and moderation? That's really what this lesson is about. I haven't said anything in this lesson that we haven't really already covered. I've just kind of added a little bit of a different angle to it, but we need to make the application. Is our dress reflecting a mindset of propriety? That I know that nakedness is shameful, and moderation. So I'm going to do my best to cover that nakedness up. Or is it sexually attractive? Is my dress designed to be sexually attractive? Whether I know it or not. And so we might ask the question, does it expose the thigh? Does it expose the breast, the buttocks, the back, and the midriff? A sexually attractive dress. That's exactly what God was saying. And we'll take it a step further because we need to make the application. We need to make sure we're always dressed in a way that covers nakedness. And that includes when we move in certain ways where our dress is going to move in certain ways. And if I haven't emphasized this already before, this is not something that simply pertains to a woman. It pertains to a man too. It just may be harder to make the application 
in a world which sexualizes women the way it does. But I want us to think about this. If I'm standing up and I say, well, my shorts or my skirt or whatever I'm wearing, it goes down to my knees, right to the top of my knees. That's great. But when I sit down, we know what happens with clothes. If there's not enough material, that's going to ride up. Is it okay to be dressed immodestly when I'm sitting down versus when I'm standing up? I don't think so. If it exposes you in any time, then that's not okay. When you cross your legs, when you bend over, when you squat down, when you reach up. There's a, a saying that I've mentioned before from this pulpit concerning the sound judgment of clothes. And it's a little it's a little bit gimmicky and not necessarily something that is strict to the standard of God's word. We need to flesh it out a little bit. But I've heard the phrase, reach to the sky, touch your toes. If anything shows, change your clothes. It doesn't matter that it's covering your nakedness when you're standing still. That's important. But what about when you move? Is your nakedness being revealed? But we would also say this, using sound judgment, remember moderation, be honest with yourself and understand that our goal in dressing is to cover our nakedness and therefore be modest. Does it accentuate nakedness instead of covering it? And I might rephrase that and say, does it accentuate the parts of the body that God defines as naked? If it accentuates it, that means it's highlighting it. It's bringing attention to it. It's, it's showing it. Then that's not, in, that's not modest dress. If the whole point is to cover up that part of the body and what our clothes do is simply change the color but not cover it up, that's not modest attire. We see clothing these days that is almost like it's painted on or clothing that clings to the form or is thin where you can see anything under it or see-through that you can see anything other, under it. And we noticed last Sunday that the, 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 uh, the uh, um, expensive clothing of First Timothy chapter 2, especially as it pertained to that culture in the Roman uh, Empire, was indeed see-through clothing. It was silk that was rewoven into two different parts, and it was gauzy and see-through. That was the expensive clothing he's talking about, at least in part. It doesn't matter, in other words, that the cloth is covering that portion of the body, if in reality it's just changing the color and not much is actually covered. If it would draw attention to and accentuate that part of the body that God defines as nakedness, then it is not modest dress. We must use sound judgment. We've got to be honest with ourselves, especially according to God's standard of what is sexually attractive or immodest dress, what is dress which does not fully cover nakedness. When we look in the mirror, we've got to ask the question, what is this dress really saying? And really think about it. What, what is my dress really saying? And you may even hear some things out in the world where, where people view that certain kind of dress as sexually attractive. Boy, I like when a woman wears that clothes, those clothes. You, you hear it all the time. It's portrayed in movies. It's portrayed in other forms of entertainment. If you've ever been to high school and been in athletics in high school as a man or as a young boy, you know the locker room talk that is in high school with the, the boys which have those hormones raging. That's what we're, they're thinking about. And they make those comments. Well, I like what she was wearing. Why? Well, obviously, sexual attraction. You've got to use that kind of sound judgment. And we've got to make sure our dress is not saying something that it's not supposed to say as a Christian. One of the common things these days, it's a fad, maybe it's here to stay, I hope not, but it probably is, is this movement toward wearing what are called yoga pants. 
They're, they're tight pants. They're, they're in a spandex material. And I'll go for, you know, further to, to, to make sure I'm covering all bases. And it's not just yoga pants that I'm talking about, but even in anything that you know, kind of resembles yoga pants. So we're not simply talking about what would strictly be defined and on the label as yoga pants, but tights, spandex, leggings. There are even things called jeggings now, which are basically leggings that appear as jeans. Those are very tight skin, tight and form-fitting attire, which would fit that description we just considered earlier. Now, as a Christian, someone may be thinking, well, I don't view it that way. That's not sexually attractive. It's covering up the area. I want us to consider what a worldly woman thinks about in regard to yoga pants. And, and this was written in the New York Times not long ago by a woman named Honor Jones. And let me specify that in this article where she's talking about how yoga pants are bad for women, she's not condemning the idea of wearing sexually attractive dress. Essentially what she's saying is, when did it get to the point where women, even when they go to the gym, have to be sexually attractive? Why can't they just be comfortable? Why can't they wear what they want to wear? She's not saying that she doesn't like to be sexually attractive. In fact, in the quote I'm about to read, she owns three pair of yoga pants and she does wear them. Her hang up is that why do women feel like they have to be pleasing to men everywhere they go? But her logic is very sound. You know, in Titus chapter one, Paul said that Cretans, one of their own, says that all Cretans are, are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And that statement is true. Sometimes the world says things that even we Christians, for some reason, are blind to. Paul used the same kind of logic in Acts 17, that even their own poets say that we're the offspring of the unknown God. And so consider this, be honest about it. What this worldly woman says we're trying to do, that is her speaking, when we wear things like yoga pants and tights and spandex and leggings and jeggings, all that would be applied to this. She said in her article written in February, it's a new year and I've got a new gym membership. She said, I went the other morning and it was eight degrees outside, and every woman in there was wearing skin-tight, saran-wrap-thin yoga pants. She said, don't get me wrong, I have yoga pants, three pairs, so she has no problem with it, but listen to what she says. But for some reason, none of them cover my ankles, and as I said, it was eight degrees, so I wore sweatpants. She got to the gym. I got on the elliptical, she said. A few women gave me funny looks. Maybe they felt sorry for me, or maybe, she says in jest, they were concerned that my loose pants were going to get tangled in the machine's gears. Especially notice this. Men did not look at me at all. And that's in contrast to what she thinks of before. That's obviously what she's saying. This is different. Men didn't look at me at all. And then she says this. We aren't wearing these workout clothes because they're cooler or more comfortable. She said, you think the selling of point of Lululemon's revealed tight precision pants is really the way their moth-eaten design provides a much-needed dose of airflow, whatever that company is. She's making a point. She says, we're wearing them because... They're sexy. Why can she see it, but some Christians can't? Why can she see it, but some Christians can't? We need to be honest. She had sound judgment here. Why can't we have sound judgment? That's what God's calling us to. The world sees it as sexually attractive dress. Is that something a Christian should be wearing? Certainly not according to God's standard. You know, as she described and defined the greater focus of of the clothing and fashion industry is sex appeal. Anybody in their right, right mind would never deny that. And anybody who would deny it is just naive at best. The whole focus of the clothing and fashion industry is sex appeal. And if you're trying to find modest clothing, you're going to find that out real quick, especially as the advertisements 
try to make it sexy. That's, that's what they're focused on. Sex sells, and they know it, and they're taking advantage of it. That's the focus. So what this would require of the Christian is great caution. Don't just go to the store and pick out anything off the rack. Because if what the focus is in that fashion industry is to make you appear sexy or to get you to buy our clothes because they will make you sexy and that's what you're trying to do is what the world is looking for, but then us as Christians should give great caution. That's the concept of moderation. We, we have sound judgment. We're being honest, especially according to God's standard. You know, the short shorts we see in the world. I'm not even just talking about Daisy Dukes, but as it pertains to God's standard, things which go above the knee, and when you sit down, they come up, they ride up. Those are sexually attractive. Tight, tight clothes, as we've just talked about. Those yoga pants and tights and jeggings and leggings, whatever you want to call them, those are immodest. They're sexually attractive. When, when a top on a woman, or even a man for that matter, is low cut, why, why is it? I, I, I always wonder why some Christians, and, and I think it's because some of them are naive, especially younger girls, I think, that they don't understand. And, and it's so easy to see if you really think about it. Why is it that a woman's V-neck goes all the way down here and the V-necks I buy just kind of come to a little V at the top? They have something that I don't have. And the industry knows it and they want to show it. Is that something a Christian should be wearing? You think about the sleeveless tops that, that are described as spaghetti scraps. What are they really covering? And even some that have thicker straps, but they cross in the back. You've seen those. I think it's especially something which is, is popular in, in workout attire. And they cross in the back, so you have these big old triangles at the back that are showing. But modest attire is something which covers from the shoulders down to the knees, front and back. So is that something Christians should be wearing? And, and why is it that a man's tank top may not be that way, but a woman's tank top does have that design. It's not just because it's cool looking, it's in the shape of an X, it's because it's a woman and we want her to look sexy. That's the focus of the fashion industry. You know, even jeans with holes. You know, someone may be wearing jeans that are, you know, even dragging on the ground, but they've, the style these days, and I think I can understand it, is that there's holes everywhere. I know Christians that have holy jeans, you know, and they have holes in places where the nakedness is that God has defined. Now, those who can only be modest, and I'm not saying they're inherently wrong, but they can only be modest is if you patch that up and that nakedness is not showing. See, if I'm wearing jeans that go all the way down to my ankles, that's great. But if there's a big old hole and my thigh is out there for the world to see, that's not modest. What if I patch it up? Well, that's that's better, isn't it? It's, I, it doesn't matter what the style is. We talked about this morning. You know, you conform to the customs of the day as long as they aren't contrary to the standards that God has revealed. You think about bathing suits. Well, I would never be caught in a bikini. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad. But I'm going to wear a one-piece. Oh, is it a little better? Well, yeah, it's covering a little more of your body. But it's not modest. It's revealing the entire thigh. It's revealing the back. It's probably revealing cleavage, which should be covered. And it's most likely skin tight. It's not really covering anything. And again, we go back to the standard of when that is something that is pure to reveal. And it's only in the marriage relationship. Are you in a place where, where people are seeing you even in a, a one-piece bathing suit? You may be more dressed than that woman over there that's in a, a bikini wearing hardly anything at all, a sh shoestring maybe, but, but you're no 
better than God's standard. And that's the importance. One piece doesn't make a bathing suit modest. We can make the application with men as well. Men think that, you know, we can just, we're, we're men, we're not women, so we can wear uh, just shorts and, and be shirtless. But God clothed Adam with the same tunic of skin that he clothed Eve with. And it covered that part of his body. Because God said that part of his body was nakedness. You know, some Christians will still, let us not be guilty of this, they'll make the location that they're at, the weather of the day, and the activity they're involved in, the excuse. You can't expect me to swim in knee-length shorts and a t-shirt. Why not? Turn to John chapter 21, and what you'll see is Peter seeing the Lord on the shoreline, and he plunges into the sea, but he does something pretty interesting before he does it. He puts on his outer garment. He put on clothes to swim. I've swam with clothes that are modest. It's not something that is impossible to do. And if you have a point that it's not as comfortable or you feel left out, so be it. But we still are commanded by God to dress modestly. And it doesn't matter if water's surrounding you or not. Is our dress modest? You know, someone consider the weather to be a factor in whether we dress modestly. You can't expect me to wear those kinds of clothes when it's 105 degrees outside. Well, why not? Do we understand where the Bible is, is um, the place where the Bible is set in, the setting of the Bible in the Middle East part of the world? You'd better believe those priests of God that were in the middle of the desert serving in the tabernacle, wearing those, those linen trousers, wearing the ephod, wearing all of those clothes. You'd better believe they were sweating while they were wearing all of that. Does that mean they could shed their clothes and be immodest? Because it's hot, by the way. Nakedness is nakedness when it's negative 20 degrees and 120 degrees. God says it ought to be covered up. Some say that the activity changes it. And this is where things like sports uniforms come into play. Well, well, I'm on the team. This is what they're wearing, so I need to, to wear that. And they may even say, well, i got to fit in. I don't want to draw attention to myself, right? But again, this morning we said you conform to the standard of the day and the custom of the day if it doesn't contradict the custom of God, which is to cover nakedness. And so things like track shorts and uniforms are often not modest. What are we going to do? I had to wear basketball shorts when I ran cross country in high school. The volleyball shorts that are just little tiny underwear, really. And those spandex that are short. I've seen some Christians that are on a volleyball team and they think that they're doing enough by having spandex that are just a little longer. But it's not covering up what they need to cover up. You may be more modest than that person to your left and to your right, but are you modest according to God's standard? No. And volleyball doesn't make the difference. You know, those wrestling singlets, those are immodest. Cheerleading uniforms, those are immodest and let me tell you this exercise does not require immodest clothes that's the point that that worldly woman was making she, she said in jest maybe they were concerned that my sweatpants were going to be caught up in the elliptical and I would fall she was making fun of that she could work out in sweatpants just as much as they could work out in yoga pants and it didn't impede her movement physical activity doesn't require us to be naked doesn't require us to be immodest we must use sound judgment and we must possess our vessels, our bodies, as First Thessalonians 4 says, in sanctification and honor. The context is of sexual immorality. 
And this is what Paul says. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That means being set apart. You're different. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Saying you need to know how to control your body. That's what we're talking about in First Timothy chapter 2. That propriety and moderation is self-control to cover the shame of nakedness. He's telling them you need to have control of your bodies. And that is in contradistinction from the Gentiles who don't even know God. Do they not know God, that God exists? That very may well be the case. That's not what he's saying though. Those who don't know God's standard don't know God. And you don't dress like those who do not know God's standard. You dress like a Christian who knows God's standard. Not in passion of lust. You don't wear what you want to wear just because you want to wear it. You wear what God wants you to wear and you control that passion. Notice verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanness but to holiness. And modest dress is unholy dress. It's unclean dress. And notice this further. Therefore he who rejects this does not reject man but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. And I would not have presented this lesson without the confidence that it is in truth and indeed the word of God in his standard he has clearly revealed to us. And so I would say the same as what Paul says. He who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. The question remains, will you dress modestly concerning God's standard? Or are you going to ignore what you ever heard and go away and continue to practice the same things and dress the same way that you always have? James chapter 1 is a wonderful place to use as a springboard for this discussion of modesty. I've done it before in another place. We're to look into the mirror of God's word. And he says, be doers of the word, not hearers only. For he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and goes away and does not do it is like a man observing his natural face in the mirror who goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. He sees something wrong and he doesn't do anything to change it. And so we literally look into the mirror and we think about God's standard. Wait a second, this doesn't meet God's standard of modest dress. What are you going to do? Are you going to go away and forget what you saw? Or are you going to be honest and make the proper application. If you're here this evening, I've not obeyed the gospel. We know that the lesson did not pertain to the pure milk of the word, just like this morning I mentioned. But we want you to know what to do to be saved. The Bible says whatever we do in word or deed, we're to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Romans 1.16 says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation. It's a good news, the message that is concerning that Jesus Christ is the son of God. That's what gospel means. And so naturally, the first step is you got to hear the gospel. And when you hear the gospel and it shows us that Jesus is the son of God, he raised from the dead and he's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. So he has the power to tell us what to do. And we believe that we hear it. We believe it. And he tells us what is sinful. So we repent of our sins. We're able to confess that belief that he is the son of God before men. He tells us to be baptized. He who believes in his baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. Jesus said it himself. Mark 16, 16. And then. When we rise up out of that water, we are a Christian, we have hope, and we walk faithfully until we reach the end of our life where Christ comes again. That's the invitation we offer to you this evening. If you haven't done it, we urge you to do so. If there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with, we ask you to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.